0: A lull in the conversation for me to jump in. Uh, so let me just open with a word of prayer before we get into our, our study of Psalm 95. So. Heavenly Father, we come to you. Um, we ask that you, you bless this time together um, as we read, study, analyze your word. and We ask that you let us realize the privilege of being able to come to you in worship and that we, we see your work throughout, throughout history and the different ways you have revealed yourself to your people, the way you have blessed them and us, but also the way that you have pronounced judgment on those who have turned away. So, Lord, let us see these things and, and let us try to see them as, as, as a whole, as, as, as part of your whole message, even as we, uh, we are inept at doing so. But, Lord, let us see these connections, and let us uh, um, work with each other as a community to, to understand and live live your words. We pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Psalm 95. I'm calling this presentation, Today's Call to Worship. Each of those words has some importance. We'll see that as we read through the psalm uh, and we'll, we'll get to that. So you can keep the, the title in mind as, as we're going through this. Just a brief outline of what we'll be looking at. So first we'll read the psalm. Then we'll look at a very brief context, sort of just some, some points to remember about that. We will then look at verses one through seven C, and the call to worship. C, yes, it's seven has basically four lines. We have to distinguish between the last line of verse seven, as that's the line where the word today is, and that's the turning point, essentially, in the psalm. And what we're gonna do for that second part of the Psalm. We're going to be looking at it in two parts. So the, the second part, we're actually going to look at that in two ways. The first is the most obvious way, which is the way of looking at it as a command, disobedience, and judgment, all in that, um, those five lines. But then also the promise. There's a, a very clear and wonderful promise that actually runs through scripture that we're seeing mentioned. Um, but that we're seeing seeing promised in in that last part. So all of those things are are combining uh, to look at our call to worship. So I'm going to put Psalm 95 up here, but it may be also useful. This is, I think, the smallest print I have in the presentation because I wanted to get it all up there. Um, So it may be useful if you read uh, in your own copy of uh, God's Word, but I I will read this psalm. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." I think Charles Spurgeon had uh, explains the feeling of reading this psalm when he says, it has about it a ring like that of church bells. And like the bells, it sounds both merrily and solemnly, at first ringing out the lively peal and then dropping into a funeral knell as if tolling at the funeral of the generation which perished in the wilderness. I think we can see that. We see the upward wonderful call, and then we see this almost a funeral knell So a little bit about context, and then we'll look at a little bit of the psalm. So first I put a psalm of David. There's really actually not a lot of consensus about this. I'll briefly explain it and then explain why to some extent it may not be that important for us to, to delve into it. But uh, so first, in your copy of, of scripture, most likely does not have the attribution of Psalm of David, because our copies are based on the oldest Hebrew manuscripts, right? Um, and it doesn't have that attribution. But if we look at the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, which is the translation of the of the the Hebrew, it actually does. It actually does attribute this. And there's a couple other Psalms that do this as well. So we have that, but that's. Fine, that's one thing, but I think more importantly, we see the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 who seems to be ascribing this to David. If we look at our translations, it says David said, Um, or we can say in David, or there there are other ways that it could have been translated. Uh, And so we have inspired word that seems to be saying that, but on the other hand, people are saying, the writer of Hebrews is actually saying, well, this is the book of David. This is David's book, and it's found in that. Similar to how Spurgeon refers to his commentary as the treasury of David. He knows that all the Psalms aren't written by David. We have attribution of so many other authors, but we talk, we talk about the book um, as a whole. And so that's sort of where this discussion goes there. And I think we're, we're, um, we're okay either way. I, Spurgeon says, well, we're inclined, based on what Hebrew says, to look at it as a Psalm of David. Uh, even though we recognize that there could be some nuance in the language used there. But what's more interesting in Hebrews, in the, when Hebrews quotes and, and quotes extensively and, and, and breaks down the second half of this psalm in, in great detail, more than attributing it to David, he attributes it to the Holy Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit said. And I think that's more important for our attribution, that this, is, this psalm is the Holy Spirit speaking to us um, and yeah, and we'll we'll leave it at that. I think that's a more useful way. So I will say also, if you look at listen to any um, sermons that use this psalm, most of them won't even touch that topic. They'll just use the psalmist. Uh, the psalmist says. Uh, so that's that's another interesting piece that we see. Okay, other context. So liturgical use. This is as you can imagine and as you probably have experienced, it's used as a call to worship. Um, It's been used as a call to worship throughout church history and probably before our church history um, in in the the Jewish worship services. And in fact, it's still used in Jewish worship services today as a call to worship, the first half of it. Um, And I think that's really important. And it's also called, sometimes called the venite, uh, which is the Latin for come, so it's referred to as that. Related to this, Keller, Tim Keller makes the point that through the centuries, the Christian church has looked to this maybe more than any other single place to inform our worship. So this is not only a call to worship, but it's a place to tell us and teach us about worship. But I also think, and this is the part that is really interesting um, to me, is, I also think that we need to look at it as this term, which I don't know if it's a real term, but historical pedagogical psalm. What do I mean by that? It's a psalm that looks at history, looks at the history of the Israelite people, looks at the history of the chosen people, looks at God's history with this people, I mean, teaches us something. And it's calling us to do that. And I think Psalm 78 actually does a much better job making that clear what it's doing. Psalm 95, it's doing that, but doesn't clearly do that. So let's quickly look, and I'm just gonna quote here, Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. And I think that we can use that as an invocation to study this psalm I and mean, look at it from this perspective. Um, teaching us from, from history. So, Let's look at it. Let's look at the first part. So this is we'll call it, it's not a half, but it's the first part. And um, again, verses one through seven C, keeping in mind that piece. So let's look at this, and I want to look at a couple questions here. This is, I'm gonna bring this out to you guys. Um, What is the psalmist remembering? And it might be helpful, I think, actually to look at these two questions together. What is the psalmist remembering? And what aspects of God are praised in the psalm? So those are our questions right now, just for the first part as we're looking at this worship piece. We will look a little bit more at the idea of worship. But I want to give you a chance to look at this. Take a second to think through that. What aspects of God and what specific things are being remembered? We can just kind of shout out some answers. And uh, anyone want to give a give you a second to look and think. That's always helpful. Go ahead, Teresa? Well, uh, he's definitely the creator. See his hands So he is the great creator. Absolutely. So we're remembering that aspect of God. We're 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 remembering what God did in creation and that aspect creator God. That's really really important. I think to see throughout the psalm that we're looking to the beginning. This is the God of creation. Good. Yeah. So we have creator God, covenant God, um, our God, the God who works with us. And that idea of covenant plays an interesting part in the second part of the psalm as well, uh, that, that contract, if you will. Good. Tim? King. King. Good. So and a shepherd. Absolutely. And can I ask, I don't know if this, why did you include those two together, just to include two answers, or was there, was there a connection between those two? No. Okay, all right. Uh, yeah, so this idea of king and, and the shepherd, absolutely. Is there, yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And that might be a nice sort of we can look at this question too to to dovetail on that. What else does the psalm tell us about the act of worship? And you're saying the bigness of it and you can feel that coming out of it. So what does that cause us to do? What's the result? What's the appropriate response? Verse 6 which is? Bow Bow down. Yeah. Bow down. It's kind of like what else can I do? Like I'm submitting myself to, to the will of, of this God because of all of these things. Absolutely. What else, Any anything else? Yep, Frank. Um, God is yeah, so there's that saving God as well. Yeah, we see that playing out. So we see, in fact, we see all these, it's wonderful to see that, right? Saving God, covenant God, creative, Um, uh, creator God, God is king, so many different aspects of that. So the day there is the Israelites? Um, do Do you want to respond to that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see what you're saying, yeah, and I think that's, that's a really, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because there's also that aspect, I, I was also puzzling over what do we make of that above all God's peace? And I think what, we've, what I've seen and what people look at there um, is one, well, there's a couple different pieces, but, but one is to say that, as you said, like in that time, there were all these other gods and they were, they, these gods had dominion over specific places, right? They had, specific, they had dominion over, um, I guess you could say, the mountains, the oceans, right? They had specific dominion and this psalm is saying, this god has dominion over all of those things. And so it's like, yeah, they have these things and then this god is over all of them. Uh, yep, John.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and you've picked up it, and I don't know I I think you're referring specifically um, to that line, let us come into his presence. So the sense that God God is present, he's this great God above all these things, above, and as you said, also with. And I think that's, a, that's an amazing concept, too. And,
1: and these other gods is what the God warned of the people of Israel about. Mm-hmm.
0: And the other thing, uh, this is a point, it's sort of an expected point from from Tim Keller related to that above all gods. His point there, which makes sense based on if if you're familiar with a lot of his work, is he's seeing that as you're gonna be, to quote the Bob Dylan song, you're gonna serve somebody, right? And he's making the point that this is a call to say like, yeah, you're worshiping something. Like, you're worshiping these, this god or that god, or you're worshiping your bank account, or you're worshiping whatever it is. Um, so why not worship the god that did all these things, right? And that's, that's one of his points. I, I think I see it in there, I, that, but I, I'm a little bit ambivalent if it's, it's that clear in this actual text, but you get the idea. Um, what other things do we see about the act of worship. So I think we, we, we've looked at that idea, and, and, and central to this, and that's why I put it first, is this idea of God and, and aspects of him and remembering what he's done. But if we're looking at this as, as the church has done throughout history, what are some aspects that might jump out at you regarding worship, Frank? Joyful. Joyful. Noisy music, yeah, there's, there's that, absolutely. Um, there's, there's joy, but there's also the, the humbling ourselves. There's like both things, there's that reaction, like, yeah, this is great, and like, wow, this is amazing kind of thing. Um, what else do we see? What other aspects? Thanksgiving gratitude. Thanksgiving, gratitude, these are things that we are supposed to bring to God, and, and again, we see the reasons for that. What about also the idea of community? I mean, the whole psalm is let us, right? And sometimes we miss that, uh, but this is a call for a community of believers to come together and do this. Uh, It's not to say that there isn't any worship outside of doing it as a a corporate body, but it is to say that it's certainly important. Uh, And some would argue that it's sort of the the highest level of worship can sort of come when a, a, Group of believers are congregated together. So I think that's also in there. Um, any other? I just want to look at my notes here. I mean, there's a lot we could say, but are there any things that are, you guys are jumping out at you right now? All. And there's almost, I'm thinking of, uh, of C.S. Lewis here, there's almost no other response when you're in the presence of that, when you're feeling that, than to worship. Right, it's, it's almost like a, the natural uh, uh, result or reaction to this is, and then this is kind of teaching us a little bit about how to do that. So now let's go to the second part of this Psalm which is the part which I find to be incredibly fascinating in in many different levels. This is, let me read this part aloud and then what I want to do is just to see if we can get the basics of what's going on and it's the historical setting that's being presented and then we'll look at it a second time, the next slide with the second set of questions. So this is that part of the psalm. After we've did this whole thing on worship, it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. Though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All right, so actually one attribute of God that may not have been present in the first half, at least may not have uh, been present uh, explicitly, is this idea of judgment and wrath. And I think that's an important reminder for us. But let's look at this. So first question here, what is the basic historical setting for this story? What is the psalmist referring to? What is is he looking back to, if we're, again, thinking of this as a historical, pedagogical psalm, looking back to something to teach us something now? The Exodus, absolutely. That's the big picture. So we're seeing the Exodus. And we could get even more specific, I think, if we wanted to. Um, maybe let's see. Um, the main passage I think that we that we see here is Exodus 17, one through seven. That's the the Massa and Marabba piece. And I think I think it's worth I think it's worth reading that. So. If we can open our text, I'm gonna leave the screen as it is, but if we can open to 17, Exodus 17. And verses one through seven. 17, one through seven. Could I have a, a volunteer to read this one out loud? Exodus 17, one through seven. Oh, yep, Tim. Thank you. So, what's going on in that passage? We could obviously do an entire Sunday school more on that wonderful passage. Uh, but what's the, the basic idea? If they didn't remember what God had done for them. They were thirsty and they. The, the King James says "chided," chided. The ESV says "quarreled," um, and as I understand it, that is referring to almost. It's uh, the the language being used here is is almost um, juridical. It's almost language of of a court of law. Like they're bringing bringing charges against. Moses, and then it's very clear in this passage that by bringing charges against Moses, they're bringing charges against God. Um, And they're they're putting God to the test, meaning they're putting him on trial. This is also um, the idea of God in the dock. This is a lot of where that, that comes from, that idea of God being on trial. And how does that work? Well, this is really fascinating. I think this passage is fascinating because what does God do as a response to their, response to their turning away? He gives them water. He gives them water. Absolutely. Now, does God in this passage does no? How do I phrase this? Does no one get punished? Because if you look at this passage, you actually see like the the staff from from um, that Moses uses in Egypt, which is kind of related to to judgment staff, right? Um, bringing the elders. People have read that, this is mainly Edmund Clowney, um, and then picked up by by Keller and and others, Um, but read that as sort of a a jury coming up there and having this trial. What's the result of that? What's the end result? What is is the staff used for? The staff, let's see, where's the language? Striking, thank you pastor. Where Where God is standing. So God is standing in the rock, by the rock, on the rock. The prepositions are hard to pin out there, but God is in that rock, strikes the rock, and what happens? Water comes out of the rock. Paul says something about that. Paul says something about someone being the rock um, and providing living water for people in the wilderness. Um, And so we see a pointer clearly to Christ in that. Um, People are complaining. They need to be punished for that, but someone else is taking that that punishment for them um, and providing water um, for them in that, that desert. So we have that pointer here. This is another one of those things that sort of points back and forward referenced in here. So back to this passage. What do we see? So we have the historical setting, and then we have that piece, and then what's the basic message? All right, this is not a hard one. What's the basic message uh, from this passage from Psalms? Can I take a guess? You can take a guess. Okay. I think maybe, um, I see Jesus in it, Did that he represents. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at one level you're correct. I think you're going ahead a little bit. Um, maybe that's my fault for going into detail about the last question. But in the, ba- the basic message of this, I want it to be even simpler for, my, for this question. I think the, the, the basic message is: people are sinning, therefore they have punished. That's, that's it. You got it. Done. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the basic message. It's basically saying, don't be like them. I mean, that, that, that's the message of this, um, essentially, the, the most immediate message of it. Right? Don't, do not harden your hearts like they did. If you do, you shall not enter my rest. Now, let's clarify right away to, to, the, to the Israelites to, in the time of Moses. Um, what is the rest referring to? It's pretty clear throughout scripture, it's referring to really the promised land, most explicitly, most upfront, the land of Canaan. So this is basically saying, you shall not enter that rest. You shall not enter the land of Canaan, which we know God actually pronounces that judgment, not because of this particular scene, that actually comes a little bit later in the wilderness wanderings, which gets to what Teresa was saying, that this is about sort of the entire wandering and the entire turning away, using a specific example to help illustrate that. they don't enter, that that generation doesn't enter the rest. Which then brings us to this idea of promise. So question we want to look at here is, okay, what is being promised? We talked about that for the land, for the Israelites, the promise was the land of Canaan. So it's being promised to the wandering generation. But there's a problem then. What's the problem if we understand it just as that? Remember the the basic context for this is this psalm, and and I think Ronnie mentioned it too. It's being written hundreds of years later, after the wilderness wanderings, right? So how can it be today if, you can picture David sitting in the land of Canaan, possibly in Jerusalem, writing down this psalm, and he's saying, well, the Spirit is saying through him, well, you're not going to enter that rest. And David's saying, well, I'm kind of in the promised land already. Um, So I don't know, how does that make sense? So so it can't be that, right? It can't just be that. And I think that's where we need to um, see. So what does it refer to? What is being promised? What is the rest? And then to whom is that promise uh, being made? And then a further question would be, when will the promise be fulfilled? So we see that in this passage. I'll leave that there, or I'll, as those who absolutely, those who possess the faith. Um, do you haven't answered the question of what the promise is yet, I don't think, have you? Okay, that's fine. We'll leave that Frank I think it goes beyond that. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a reference for us to that the, the final rest which comes through the Messiah absolutely. Um, and we'll look at that. Good. Absolutely, and so let's look at part of that passage from, from Hebrews. It's worth reading, um, I'll leave these off. It's worth reading all of Hebrews three and four uh, as a commentary on this on this part. Uh, but I'm gonna look at this and see what the, the, the inspired word of, of scripture is telling us from, from this perspective. And this is part of the why I say it goes beyond the Messiah piece because we have Hebrews writing about it. I mean, writer. Um, So it says, for he has somewhere spoken, the he there is, the Holy Spirit referenced earlier passages, Um, for the Holy Spirit has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of the disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying, through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Okay. And then the next line, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So that's just reiterating what we just said, right? Wouldn't it make sense for David, many years after Joshua had led them into the promised land to say, you will then enter the promised land. So there must be another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay, so we see a connection here, and this is exactly what Chris was saying uh, the already not yet peace. I think we see that in the last couple lines there where he says, um, there remains a Sabbath rest, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested. So in the sense that it's already part of that group that, that he's writing to. But then the next line saying, well, if I've already entered that rest, does it make sense to say, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, that no, no one may fall away. So there's the connection that's saying, it's already not yet, and it's pointing towards this larger piece. But it's also pointing, fascinatingly, to back to creation, which was mentioned in the beginning part of the psalm, the Sabbath rest of God. So, if we again we say, so what is being promised? Rest. Um, and I will quote specifically. This is uh, James Montgomery Boyce talking about this uh, this passage, just so we have a clear statement about it, It says, the verses are applied to salvation through faith in Christ. In their Old Testament context, they have to do with entering the promised land. And under normal circumstances, we would have no warrant for applying them to anything else, except perhaps as an illustration of some spiritual truth. But here, we have an inspired New Testament commentary on the psalm that tells us that the meaning of the psalm is not exhausted by the entry of the people into Canaan or by their failing to enter, but is to be seen in the far more important matter of entering the promised rest of God, which is in heaven. That last part is interesting too. We'll see there might be some contradiction to the next quote, but um, the idea here is that this is pointing to Christ, but the fascinating thing, or at least the thing that I find fascinating, is that it's been pointing there, right? The whole idea, Sabbath rest, that being a, 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 a gift and a command um, to the people of God, that rest that we share in. Um, and then the land, again, this is the land, this is a promise, um, and it's still pointing to something else. And what's interesting is that we we see all of these things sort of coming together in the ultimate fulfillment, which is a new Jerusalem, um, which includes tree of life, which includes all these things. So all of these things are coming together um, in that final promise. So they're they're pointing there, they're there, um, and we can kind of see them. So that's what I found to be um, fascinating in this promise. So. Now, this passage, I had to include a quote from this article because I did find it really interesting when I was studying this. It is an academic article, and so the language in it uh, can be a bit dense and nuanced, but I think that nuance is important for this subject, um, and there's no way that I could articulate this uh, in the time here. So I'm gonna read this. We can kind of break down slightly, and then we'll uh, sort of uh, move to to closing, or, or. questions, really. Um, so this is from Walter Kaiser's The Promised Theme and the Theology of Rest. So he says, the rest of God is distinctly his own rest, which he offers to share first. I just love that idea of him sharing his rest, that we're sharing that piece. To me, that's fascinating um, and amazing. Um, he offers to share first with Israel and through them with all the sons of men who will also enter it by faith. While there were antecedent aspects of that final rest to come, chiefly in the divine rest provided by the inheritance of the land of Canaan, because it was not accompanied by the inward response of faith to the whole promise of God, of which this rest was just a part, the land of Canaan still awaits Israel and the people of God. The rest of God, lost in the fall, again rejected by the older wilderness generation, and subsequently by their erring children, is still future to us in our day, today. The dead will enter into its full enjoyment after their resurrection from the dead. Therefore, it is not to be identified with heaven. Rather, it is fixed by Isaiah 11.10 as being in the day when the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people. In this eschatological setting, his rest shall be glorious. Then the Lord shall choose choose Jerusalem as his dwelling place, and this new David will say, this is my resting place forever. I think that's a nice um, articulation to move through there. Are there thoughts, questions, things that. We do have a few minutes before we kind of close, but I always like to end early if possible, people like that. Uh, questions, thoughts? I see, oh, go ahead and then. Absolutely, and many people talk about that as as part of even uh, as as a necessary element to worship itself, and the fact that we're worshiping not to get something out of it because we already have what we need. So we're resting from our work, we're resting from all of those labors, and then we and we're doing it almost for uh, in, in enjoying because that's what. We do, I mean it is our duty, but, but we're not doing it for that reason. Um, so absolutely, I think that, that that is a huge piece of this. Um, and so many different levels, and I think those are again sort of pieces that are pointing to the final one, right? Um, i rest in that. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think of it as creation, when cre- creation was done, this was sort of how it was supposed to be. Um, so there's a, the pointing back to creation um, is, in a sense, saying, like, this was, in a sense, it's saying this was the plan all along, if that makes sense, um, and that. and that it, it, the new heavens and the new earth are pointing back to Eden, in a sense. I think, at least from our perspective, that would be God's rest. I think the only thing we know about God's rest from scripture is that he saw the work was good and he rested. But we know that he's still working. So there's the other element that comes through that this is, not a, this is a working rest in a sense, and what does that mean? Um, but that plays out, I think, in, in, in that idea that we're, in a sense, that this is me, sort of this might be a stretch, in a sense that we're also seeing that new heavens and new earth are gonna be connected to Sabbath, the way we view the, the, the Sabbath as a, as a time of rest, but what do we do on our time of rest? We worship God, um, and we, we remember the creation, so it kind of comes back to that. So, yeah, I mean, I think I can answer that question better when I have different things in front of me, but, but I think that's my, something I was thinking about for that. John? Mm-hmm. There are for those in scripture. For which part And the first paragraph What that see what it is the first sentence. It is It is the rest, the full completion of the rest. And I think what's happening here, and and he kind of breaks it through in in the article in a a very academic way and and, and thorough way, I think, but basically, part of this has to do with this idea of if we're viewing this rest, if we're viewing a sort of partial fulfillment of the rest in the land of Canaan, in that promise, in that fulfillment, then there has to be a physical land element to this. There has to be a physical land element with a bodily form, which is our resurrection. That's why it goes beyond the what we might call like the intermediate state, if that's what, if that's what you're asking. Um, so it's not one of those it wouldn't be a through idea where it didn't work the land Mm-hmm. Is that kind of I, th- I think so. I, I think that that these are these are pointers for us as we're as we're reading Scripture and as God is 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 revealing these things to us, they're pointing to this this last piece, which was part of the plan in in the beginning. Um, now, to what extent? I guess the, I guess I'm, uh, the question is: to what extent are we tying that to any land? today is is that part of your question or Will, but, but the new—I mean, the new Jerusalem will be, in some ways, a, a somehow related, at least in name um, and in attributes. To what extent those attributes are there? But we're not talking um, the actual physical current land of Canaan. If that makes sense. Yeah. All right. Go ahead.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely, and I think that's part of the reason why the the resurrection is so important to this element. Okay. Oh, pastor wants to join uh, in, all right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. And then in in Exodus 17, 7, that's what scripture teaches is the thing that they
1: didn't believe. That the the childing or quorum was, you know, is God with us or
0: not? Yeah, that was the last line there. That was the question. Good. So that we'll put one last thing that I will read and then we'll close, I think, in prayer for the time being. Which ties in perfectly. Nice intro by our pastor. So this is from Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this discussion. We thank you for your word and these reminders. We thank you for the reminder that the worst possible thing is our separation from you, and that comes from our distrust um, of your promises, our distrust of what you have done. Um, and, and Lord, when we see those things, when we see what you have done, we can't help but call out and, and worship. We do this together. Um, we, the call comes to us together to do this. Um, the call comes for us to remember who you are and, and what you have done, but also your uh, your warnings to us um, and we also thank you for helping us to see your word, I mean, your revelation um, throughout history, and, and to see how all these things point to that rest, which is the, the opposite of separation, that rest that it comes with you, and remembering that rest and um, um, in within that rest. We can't help but uh, want to cry out and, and make a joyful noise to you, the rock of our salvation. We pray this in his name, in Jesus'
1: name, amen.